Minneapolis Construction and Development event. We are so excited to have all of you in one room, live and in person, not in a virtual room. Thank you all so much for being here. We're so excited to be here. You know, there is a ton that is facing the Minneapolis Construction and Development uh, uh, ecosystem, right? We have supply chain issues. We have market conditions. Uh, we have local and national regulations, all of which are affecting how we build, how we build it, um, and what we build. Luckily, we have 11 of the industry's foremost thought leaders to talk us through all of it today. Uh, no pressure, guys, but we're, 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 we're excited for that. Before we get started, make sure to keep an eye out for our Twin Cities State of the Market event in July. It will be hosted at the gorgeous new United Properties Project, the RBC Gateway Tower. Um, Jim from Smallwood, where's Jim? He's on one of our panels today. Uh, Jim knows a thing or two about that project. Make sure to, uh, to ask him about that. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors, our partners that help us put on each of these events that we do in the great city of Minneapolis. Uh, Larkin Hoffman, founded in 1958. Larkin Hoffman consists of a collaborative, creative, and philanthropic, philanthropic team of attorneys that has never wavered from these principles. Uh, Pace Loan Group, check out their flyer on your table for more information about Pace Loan Group. Uh, Smallwood, uh, as mentioned, one of our panelists today. Moderno Purslian Works, which I can assure you is not your grandma's porcelain. And Geberit, a global leader in concealed tank and carrier systems for wall-mounted plumbing fixtures. And now, to make her BizNow stage debut, I'd like to welcome up Maureen from Larkin Hoffman to introduce our first panel. Let's give Maureen a round of applause. Good morning, everyone. I'm actually not going to introduce the panel. That will be Brian Huntington's job. Um, as we get started here, if the first panel wants to make their way up here, um, I'm Maureen Ladone. I'm an associate attorney with Larkin Hoffman Law Firm. We have about 80 attorneys in a variety of practice areas with particularly strong practices in construction and real estate litigation and transactional work. Um, also land use, a strong land use department. I hope that you all have enough coffee to keep you awake during Daylight Savings Recovery Week. Um, if you don't, there's always St. Patrick's Day on Thursday, and then you can add a little something extra to your coffee. So um, I think that's about all I have for you. And with that, I will turn it over to Brian Huntington to introduce the first panel. Good morning. Can you hear me? Well, very nice to be with you all this morning. Brian Huntington, I'm a shareholder and trial lawyer with the firm of Larkin Hoffman. Uh, real estate trial lawyer. Uh, even though I'm asking the questions this morning, this is not a deposition. I will not use what you say against you in court, but I can't promise someone else in the room won't. That's a joke. Um, so what I want to talk about today, I'll lay out the themes I want to talk about, then I'll introduce the panel. As this is the construction panel, what we want to talk about today, or at least I do, and I'm the, the, the uh, moderator, so we, we get, we're going to talk about what I want to talk about. Inflation, supply chain issues, labor shortages, and local regulatory obstacles. Those are the themes that we're going to address today. And I'll start with the introductions uh, with Jim Tomac, who is immediately to my right. Uh, he is a contract administrator with Smallwood. And 
As was noted by Zach previously, they are the architect of record for the RBC Gateway Project on the other side of the city. And certainly I, I want to get an update from Jim. Uh, immediately to the right of Jim, we have Carol Meddy. She is a developer with Sherman Associates. Uh, interestingly, she also uh, wears a hat on the Eden Prairie Planning Commission, so uh, she's seen it from both sides, from the development and from the government perspective of development. And uh, Caitlin and Carol, so Carol and Caitlin's to her right, they both went to college together, so if we run out of things to talk about, we'll ask them to sing the Wisconsin fight song. Uh, then to the right, Caitlin Murray with North Shore Development Partners. Uh, they have a lovely development, I Love Wyzetta, if you've ever been to Six Smith. Uh, immediately north of that is a development called uh, Wyzetta Blue, and it was several dozen uh, condominiums, and, and they were the developer on that. And I understand she's a regular traveler to Ireland as well. How many times have you been to Ireland? Uh, six. Wow, wow. Uh, finally, on the other end, we have Jay Bakta. He is a partner with JR Hospitality. Uh, JR is a third generation hoteliers, uh, so pretty impressive. Um, they work with a variety of franchisors and have, um, they both develop new hotels as well as manage existing hotels. So now that we've gone through the panel, Jim, can you give us an update with respect to the Gateway Project? I understand that uh, RBC has actually moved into its offices and that the hotel is scheduled to open in the summer. Can you, can you fill us in on what's happening there? So uh, <clears throat> in a nutshell, that's where we're at. Uh, the RBC office portion is open. The Skyway and RBC lobby, um, which kind of create, I think, the furthest towards the river uh, connection point to the <clears throat> Skyway system is uh, open and operational. The hotel is currently taking reservations starting June 1st. Um, there are multiple office levels with a variety of tenants on different schedules of build out, et cetera. But I think that for the most part, it has been well received by the community as, as far as leasing goes. And many of these will be along uh, lines with the hotel and coming online this summer. Um, the top of the building is actually uh, designed as white box condominiums that uh, have been sold to various people with various plans and various schedules. I would expect the condo work to continue probably into late this year, early next year. But uh, one of the things I, I would say overarchingly is that the project through all of the challenges we've had in the last two and a half, three years is completing on schedule and within reasonable budget. And that's something that I think each member of the team, UP, uh, United Properties, that is, Smallwood, our construction partner, McGough, can all be very proud of is we, we've been able to muster through some of the issues that we're going to talk about today on the panel. Yeah, well, let's get into that. I mean, to me, it's almost unfathomable that that could be done, given everything we've wrestled with. And, and let's start with inflation. You know, what have you seen specifically in terms of materials or inputs into the project? Where are you experiencing inflation the worst? And how have you coped with that as you've gone through the project, seeing uh, very significant inflationary increases? So one of the advantages RBC had to, to that point is it, it was contracted before all of these problems really manifested themselves. 
but that didn't leave us without a problem because you know not everything was bought three years ago. It was planned to be bought and costs have risen. And what I think that any, the core of every answer to all of these questions is to have a strong team willing to work hard together to ob obtain the objective of the project. And we spent a lot of time looking for opportunities to save money, looking for opportunities to truly value engineer materials to get equal product for lesser cost and not just have to end up cutting scope. And, you know, everybody shared a little pain, uh, which is, you know, the, the nature of that beast. And I think that we were very successful in defending against these things because of those three things. You know, we, we, we just worked together. We found opportunities to save money. We found opportunities to minimize costs for equal products. And we all shared a little pain. Let's open it up to the rest of the panel because you all have a number of projects in the pipeline right now. How are you coping with inflationary increases? I can touch a little on that. So I'm uh, working on developing a, a, a multifamily tower in downtown Minneapolis called O2. It's going to be a 22-story, 240-unit market rate luxury apartment building, um, not too far from RBC Gateway on Washington Ave. Um, we're looking to close here in the next few weeks on that project, and it, it's been in the works for a number of years. But uh, as of uh, last summer, we had gone out to bid. We're using Krauss Anderson uh, as our contractor. We, we went out to bid. Um, and uh, more recently, then we rebid it this January. And uh, you know now that we're trying to finalize our construction contract, the, the difference uh, between the first time around, essentially a period of six months, the price was about 6.5% uh, higher. So we saw that kind of direct change, and in a project of that size, we were we were looking at six million dollars uh, over budget, which is a huge number. So um, you know the ways that we've been trying to deal with it, which is something yeah we can all probably talk about, um, is you know obviously having a good uh, contractor partner, you know, and I would say architect as well. So we're working with ESG, but coming up with ideas um, where we can save money. Um, uh, Krauss Anderson's been great and actually bringing in some of our key subs too because we might uh, have someone who looks at the building and say well it's really expensive because you have you know all these different panels on your siding and if you actually instead of a million little panels if you had maybe less big panels things like that can can help so we've we've really dug into the weeds from high level down to really low level uh, uh, details and trying to find ways to save costs I would say another thing that we're doing or you know that has been helpful is touring other projects. So seeing other things, you say, "Oh my gosh, okay, I see how they uh, did that there. We should do that." Or, you know, do do we really need to be you know maybe over designing this one aspect of it because we're seeing all these other projects doing this? So I've I've found that to be helpful as well. I will go next. Hi, I'm Caitlin. Nice to see everybody today. Um, as Brian mentioned, I'm with North Shore Development Partners. We're Wyzetta based local uh, multifamily apartment developer and owner. We focus mostly in the suburbs, so mostly wood frame uh, projects. Uh, we've done um, everything from Cottage Grove to Wyzetta and 100% affordable projects to high-end condos, but mostly market rate stuff in between. Um, not really a fun fact, but something that we wanted to, to run the exercise on. We actually started an in-house affiliate construction company in the summer of 2020. Excuse me. So 
Um, we just opened, well, last fall we opened a project in Cottage Grove, and um, actually last fall we actually just broke ground on a project in New Brighton. And so we have real-time pricing uh, buyout we're happening right now, we're actually wrapping up right now with our project in uh, New Brighton. So we're seeing, you know, real costs come through. And so we thought, okay, what, you know, we know, so we finished the buyout of our Cottage Grove project late in, uh, sorry, fall to late 2020. And so if we built that same exact project today that we broke ground in 2020 on, it'd be 18 to 20% higher to build the same exact product, same location, same plans, same everything. So it's real um, and it's, it's driving a lot of change in the market and how we think about projects, how we analyze our returns. Um, there's, you know, until we kind of talked internally and until people stop building projects, until projects stop getting done, I don't. We don't see it changing anytime soon. Um, so that's that probably is is where we stand. But um, it's yeah, it's made us analyze and dig deep in terms of like Carol mentioned, you know, where where are the dollars going, where's the most impactful pl places to put the dollar. So, but I'll hand it off to Jay, and I we open to your feedback. Yeah. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're very active in construction development uh, in the hotel world, which is kind of unique, especially in Minneapolis, but uh, we have currently five hotels under construction, uh, four in the downtown uh, core, and then one by the airport, and we have actually six hotels that we're trying to break down in the next probably 90 days. Uh, not all in Minneapolis. We have two in Minneapolis in the Dinah uh, area, which is supposed to be modular, and then uh, one in Madison, one Denver, and I guess the the feedback we got from that is that, you know, we actually bid those three projects uh, post or pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, so we have some really good data and kind of what we've seen on the construction cost side. And so uh, we're almost, I think, 32% higher uh, from pre-pandemic to post-pandemic prices. So I tell people, especially anybody in hotel development, you, you really have to be an optimist uh, to be in this business. and. Um, because uh, if you if you follow hotel or hospitality industry, a lot of comparisons have been done to 2019, and when are we going to get back to 2019 uh, performance? But um, if you underwrite uh, some of these projects at 2019 performance, you know they're not going to they may look good enough to get your bank approval, but it's not going to look good enough for get our entrepreneurial return that we're looking for uh, when we're investing our dollars. So you have to be optimistic and say, okay, how much better are we going to be than 2019? as we stabilize the asset so um, and you know I think we're seeing that in certain markets Minneapolis for sure is uh, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of ways to go I think we got we're one of the lowest in the top 25 MSA in terms of performance right now but uh, I think there's a lot of uh, we'll see a huge uh, growth I think this year just because we have a lot to grow uh, I think when I look at the last uh, report you know Minneapolis was 130 percent up but it's still 45% down from the peak, so um, it's still <laughs> a lot of ways to go. So um, I guess that's the insight I can provide in terms of cost. I mean, how we're mitigating it, you know, we're, we've changed our process a bit. You know, before, when we work with contractors, we usually go with a single um, contractor that we've vetted, interviewed, get comfortable, go through a really in-depth process, review every bidder, review every bid, you know, negotiate every single line item and uh, spend two, three months going through that process and, and get the best possible price. But now if you do that, your price that you got three months ago isn't valid anymore. So you know, now we've kind of had to change the process and say, okay, we're going to now bid it with three contractors we like, figure out who's going to be our best offering between those three, and then maybe spend one or two weeks negotiating and then going. Uh, it just 
the process has had to change quite a bit just because the world we're living in right now. So that's kind of how we've changed a little bit the Marseille. I think that's a really good point you bring up about the time, because uh, we're working, we've, we've experienced this with, with the projects I'm working on, the time that we've spent to value engineer, any savings now has been erased by price increases. It's just that crazy. Exactly. And you also bring up a good point of just partnering with people you really trust and work with. Um, that is a lot of time and money in that just relationship right there that you invest. Uh, if you can just pick a partner that you really work with and trust to help you work through these issues together, um, there's a lot of value in that. I'll echo that too. We, we uh, are working with Krauss Anderson and, and we didn't uh, you know, necessarily go out and bid it between three contractors and then choose one and go. We had to choose them early on in the game because you need that partner to work with you the whole way. So you're not necessarily picking someone based off of um, you know, maybe initial competitive bids because you know so much is going to change. So who can you partner with that's going to work with you? Um, uh, you know, and you know that you're getting, uh, at the end of the day, the best price with them um, through that value engineering process. I think, I think Jay brought up a, a point earlier about, you know, looking at things from the perspective of 2019, and it kind of hits home for me. We've, we've recently had a project, and it's a hospitality project, where, you know, obviously things came in over the budget. And uh, the answer to the problem was not reducing the quality or quantity of what we were going to build. But it was taking a look back at what were the performances in the performa that were indicating what the budget should be. Um, we are seeing in the, across the market hotel rates rising faster than they ever have in, in my career. And certainly property values are increasing at or above the pace of some of the construction cost issues. So I think that to the point of you need a strong team, you need a strong team very early nowadays to both help you analyze is the information we use to make this deal two years ago still appropriate? How do we then take the team very early and move them in a direction of first time right cost design and, and construction costs being established? Because really, I think more than any other time in my career, which is you know only three or four years, but um, speed to market is the differentiator here. We, we all have some uncertainties of what's coming in the future with a 7% inflation annually being predicted, different other factors coming into our world as far as our economy's strength or weakness. Really, speed to market is paramount for a lot of our developers. And I, I think that holds true in Minneapolis or any other market. Uh, you really got to get in gear. And some of these things we're talking about, without strong partners being focused on the real issues, will cost you time that is more valuable than any savings you'll get after that delayed process. One of the things we talked about yesterday, Jim, was how inflation is impacting bargaining power vis-a-vis uh, -vis subcontractors. You know, we talked about, for example, diesel uh, prices, which are now over $5 a gallon. And can you tell me to what degree do owners, general contractors, have the ability to resist just p being passed along these prices from subs, or is it pretty ubiquitous now that subs are just going to pass through any additional costs and there's really no way to negotiate that? From where I'm sitting, I'm seeing a proverbial turning of the table. Uh, general contractors no longer have the big lever. It is major subs that have the big lever. And while it has 
a little bit of ties into these costs and in, in the way they'll you know I'm, I'm hearing feedback that people will only hold prices for 10 or 15 days or you know award the contract today or I can't promise I'll be there for you tomorrow the, these are completely unreasonable statements five years ago but they are the norm today and I think it you know everything's gonna come back for me in my mind to the strong partnerships you have and the fairness between those partners all that being said um, you know I think it was Caitlin that said you got to get those major subs to the table. You, you, it's not anymore that these general contractors can go to their database and find the accurate pricing for the tile sub. You've got to get the tile sub in the room because he has lots of issues that he's dealing with, labor and the shortages of it. The predictability of supply chain is impossible. You, you just don't know. You, you can look through a catalog, pick 10 tiles, and, and all 10 of them could be available. All 10 of them you may never, ever get. And it... You really need the feedback more than ever from your major subs and you need I think that the industry kind of needs to take the thought process of the relationship that we know we have to create between a general contractor an architect and an owner and transfer that now down into our major subs and bring them into the fold so they really have you know equity coming out of the project when they do a good job and skin in the game during the job you know we're dealing with that real time on our O2 project um, we, we recently got an email from a sub uh, who, who announced price changing uh, increases on a Luca Bond, you know, um, exteriors. And if you lock in their price by, you know, March 31st, you, you know, that's what it is. But if you wait until April 1st, it's 7.5% higher. Um, so that's tough. And, you know, again, real time with this project, we're now saying, okay, how, how can we hedge against that? You know, we're looking at, uh, trying to lock these subs in uh, before we you know, close on the project. And, and that's some, a risk we're having to take because we know um, and apparently these price increases come quarterly. Um, we're right at that cusp right now where we're saying if we wait till April 1, there's going to be a significant difference in that construction price. And so what can we do by the end of March to uh, secure that? Because you can't necessarily even hold, hold out a sub for two weeks there. You know, you come back and it could be a completely different price. Not to beat a dead horse, but same thing's happening to us on the smaller scale. You know, you're dealing with lots of big major suppliers in the market, concrete construction, even on the wood frame. Smaller scale side, we're seeing the same thing, stuff we've never seen before, as Jim mentioned. Um, Subcontractors that we've trusted and liked and worked with for 10, 20 years now, you know, add an addendum in their contract saying any material supplier, any material price we have quoted isn't, you know, we're passing along to you. So it's, again, like Jim said, that's never heard of, but, but that's what we're facing. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of the same thing. I mean, I guess how do you fight against it or mitigate against it? That's kind of the question on, you know, best practice against that. And, you know, it's it's the way the language is written on all of these is now it's not even when you order. So we thought, okay, let's put these deposits in, let's make an investment. But now they're saying, no, it's when it shifts is when the price is at, gets set. Well, that kind of changes how we have to approach it. So we're really just saying, okay, if we're going to have to have a price increase, give us the quote you got the day you bid this thing. We need to see quantities. We need to see prices compare it against it, and they need to provide those backup options uh, or backup uh, documentation for us to accept it. And so we're, I think we're now, we're in, now we know that we're in this environment. That's how we're approaching General Contractor new projects that, hey, if we're going to be doing it, if you're going to pass this or put this language in the contract, then this is how we're going to see it uh, when you bring it to us. Uh, so we're not an open checkbook. So I think that's kind of how we're trying to mitigate it. But at the same time, when we're kind of getting in the weeds and say, okay, we want the vendor's contact, their information, because you know, just because you underbid it or miscalculated something, 
you know, we're not, we're not, we shouldn't be responsible for the, those costs. So um, we're just trying to be a little bit more conscious of, you know, having an open checkbook in the situation. How are you dealing with the situation? I think a lot of us maybe have tried to order an appliance and we're told it'll be three, six months, a year more. Uh, how do you deal with the situation where in your design phase you, you've selected a particular input and then suddenly you realize, hey, I'm not gonna be able to get that in time. I imagine it happens quite regularly. What strategies have you used uh, to get the timely alternative that you need? I, I would use one word, flexibility. You know, we've all worked with architects who have certain products within their specifications that have been in there for, you know, in our case, 40 years. And it's the product we have faith in, and it's the product we're used to. As design team members, we need to open our minds to the suggestions, again, that we hope major subs and general contractors are bringing early to the process. It, it is, it's a design assist thought process where, where you're actually bringing these team members on early enough to advise us, not just in what color or which manufacturer is less expensive, but what systems are less expensive. And it needs to be a holistic, um, it needs to be holistic in the design process because I'll be honest, you, you know, I'd ask you to raise your hands, but everybody would. How many times have you value engineered something that cost more? And more than any other time in my career, that can happen right now, and it can happen quickly. The other thing is that, uh, you know, I, I, I was kind of, you know, three main points on RBC project, but one of the things that was done well on the FF&E and these appliance type things is as soon as costs started getting crazy and all of these things happened, we didn't delay ordering. And we decided warehousing has to come back into the world. You know, we've all been in this process of just-in-time delivery. Now we're in the process of buy it when it's cheap and the storage of it is less than the increase if we wait. And uh, you know, there was a lot of FF&E procurement, a lot of OS&E procurement from the hotel's end that took that approach, and I think it was a net savings compared to what it could have been. I think what we're doing to manage that is um, starting those processes a lot earlier than we used to. So whether it's appliances or furniture, we're now you know, doing that way earlier on and knowing that we have to make quick decisions um, and, and then the flexibility, so dealing with, you know, we, we couldn't get the appliances we wanted at our moment project downtown, and, um, you know, we wanted a certain type of fridge, and if we wanted this type of fridge, um, we, we could get it, but then we couldn't have a full set of matching appliances, so we might have a GE fridge and a Whirlpool range or something, so then we were having to decide, oh gosh, is that okay to mix and match, but yeah, I think it's, it's flexibility, but now that we all kind of know this is up, this is happening, everybody's getting on top of these things so much earlier. Yeah, it goes back to flexibility and again, working with subs that you trust and appreciate because we actually, in the design process, again, starting earlier, we're, we didn't even really pick out what we wanted. We kind of started the process, say, what can we get? And then we can pick from there. Yeah, and I, I guess, yeah, we've done the warehouse strategy. Uh, we're doing that on a few projects right now, but uh, I guess for us, with the extra complication that we have is we're building branded products. so. When you go to Hilton and Marriott and say, hey, we're going to build your prototype, but we're going to put something else in there, they have a little bit of heartburn. But the good thing is I think they've, uh, you know, they've had to adapt to the market and say, hey, these guys are willing to build hotels right now, which maybe not a lot of people are. And uh, we have to be flexible in our, in our um, you know, requirements and our specifications to accommodate the current world. So we, we have seen the flexibility, and we've seen more conversations like that than, 
the brand has ever had regarding us, you know, prototypes. So we're fortunate to at least they're you know coming to the table with that. Um, so I guess that would add that perspective from a branded perspective. Let me ask about the state of uh, availability of labor in the construction market right now. Uh, we are now in a situation, a lot of builders vocally oppose the federal vaccine mandate that has been struck down. I'm curious, uh, you know, where are we now? Is, is it still the case that it's very difficult to find uh, certain types of subcontractors in a timely manner? Do you think the situation has improved in the last three months or is it more just status quo in terms of challenging, uh, challenging time finding skilled labor? Uh, this one's a little out of my expertise, so I'll just say that I have been watching a great team of folks on the RBC project scramble. And uh, that being said, they've been successful in their scrambling efforts, and I'll pass it down the line after that. It, similarly, for me, I'm a little bit shielded uh, on, on really seeing that direct consequence of uh, labor shortages with subs. But, um, you know, one example, you know, right now is, you know, if we bid out the project and we have, you know, three or four subs bidding one scope and we have the sub who we intend to go with, um, if we, again, don't lock them down uh, early um, and they book another job, they're n not as flexible um, necessarily. And so they might pull out um, and, and you're, you're facing then, um, on some cases, the next uh, lowest bidder is $500,000 higher. So there's a lot of risk there that we're being exposed to on that. Yeah, we have we have seen it. Um, that's part of the, probably I don't know the exact split, but part of the significant cost increases is obviously labor. You, because of the shortage, you have to pay more. And again, just getting them to show up uh, is the challenge. And so meeting your keeping your time frames, meeting your time frames, but also goes back to those relationships of just working with the subs and owners of the subcontractors that you trust to work together and get things done. Yeah, I would say I mean. Definitely from a labor perspective, I think um, we can't build a hotel as fast as we used to. Um, it just and, and we had the problem before pandemic. I mean, now it's just a little worse. It probably takes you know it used to be ten months for a hundred room hotel. Now it's then it became thirteen months. Now it's probably fifteen or months or so. And so uh, the schedules have increased. Um, you know, one that's one of the reasons we're you know interested in modular um, and and doing that RE Diner project that way. So hopefully we'll break ground this uh, this summer this fall. It's, and see that process come through, and, and we can build a 239-room hotel in 10 months. But uh, if it happens, we'll be happy. But I think that's one way to combat it. Yeah. I want to talk a bit about local regulatory changes that present obstacles to you. Uh, yesterday, Carol, we discussed, and I'd like you to discuss how you've reacted and uh, been able to deal with a, a local regulation change from the city of Minneapolis with respect to uh, street and sidewalk closures uh, and how that has been a significant cost item for you Minneapolis. Today. Yeah, uh, you know, putting construction costs aside, there, there's, as you said, other exposures on what's going on with uh, fees and, and regulatory, you know, things, um, which vary widely from city to city. So city of Minneapolis this past summer had passed an ordinance uh, increasing the right-of-way fees uh, for, uh, you know, construction projects that are closing down sidewalks and streets um, so you can, you know, put a crane and, and, you know, pour your concrete and whatnot. So, so uh, a direct example for a project on O2, 
um, prior to passing of that ordinance, we, you know, that was something that was interestimate and frankly something we've never really paid much attention to before. Uh, it, and the, the, the estimate that Kraus Anderson had for the street closure costs was about uh, 750 grand. Um, I, you know, we saw this ordinance passed, so we had them update their calculations because it was something that's uh, gone into effect now in 2022. And um, they took their plan, they had all, everything calculated of how many days they needed to close certain sidewalks and certain streets and everything, and, they, and, and you have this fee per day, per foot, everything. They plugged in the updated fees, and now that same scope of closures uh, is is 2.5 million dollars. So just from that one change, you know, we saw we had a 1.7 million dollar problem. Now um, uh, I think this goes back to you know working with uh, the city and working with your contractor. Um, you know, we had uh, numerous meetings with them with their right of way folks and um, helped provide some guidance on how we might change our plan to reduce the scope of the closures so we got that back down uh significantly but you know our contractor had to change their plan pretty significantly in order to do that so you know there's always those those kind of large risks out there on things that uh you might not think uh uh to, to watch for and it happens so in our other project downtown moment um that's already under construction and they passed this ordinance and um that also impacted that that construction and they again changed their plan to, re to reduce the scope of closures but we're already underway and that one was tough in that um, you know you don't get necessarily grandfathered in uh, you know if we're still building in 2022 those fees uh, you're, you're, you're nine months into construction and all of a sudden you're facing higher fees than you had before so so it's tough but um, it requires I think working with cities uh, mainly on a lot of that stuff any other examples that the panel would like to give we talked a lot about rent control at the last such business now events so if you want to talk about that great but other types of municipal regulations that are presenting some hindrances to you yeah I mean and this is not maybe not anything new but you know definitely something we didn't think about until we we're well into these projects but you know different cities have different sewer access charge or sack and whack fees and so you know for instance, I'll, I'll throw out Edina, but uh, you know, Edina has additional, I think, forty-five hundred dollars on top of the twenty-five hundred dollars uh, that you pay per sack. And so, just to give you an example, on a two-room hotel, it would be about a hundred sack. So, if you think about, you know, that's forty-four hundred fifty thousand dollars extra to build, uh, take, or the, in terms of fees in the city of Edina. So, just something you have to build in and think about uh, in some of these different cities. And a lot of times, you're not thinking about it until you're <laughs> about to pull that permit. So, uh, you know. You, just something to, I would definitely be asking that. And um, another thing, you know, where this is not really in Minneapolis, but in, in Aurora, in Colorado, where there's where the tap fees, this is another 200 some room hotel, it's a $2 million tap fee, um, or one, sorry, $1.4 million tap fee. And so our team has gone back to the civil contract, or civil engineer, gone back to the architect and say, can we reduce it from a four inch tap to a three inch tap? And what calculations need to be done? And we've actually been successful in that, and that's actually saved the project $350,000 just by spending an extra two weeks on that particular item, but um, probably something we wouldn't maybe have thought about in that, you know, in, in every scenario, but in this scenario, it was pretty important to us. So. And we're doing that in other projects now, but uh, just something, uh, you know, to think about as well. Hey Zach, do we have any questions from the audience? Would this be a good time for that? Are there, yeah, are there any hints on how to get appliances for large uh, construction projects in order to get COs? Order them a year ahead of time. 
just like Jim said, it's probably cheaper to, it's probably more cost effective to rent a warehouse to store, store them than wait for them and order them just in time. So we're, we're doing that right now. We're watching not just on the appliance subject, but uh, interesting that one of the biggest hurdles we've had is exit signs. And uh, I think that each project is going to have to talk to its subcontractors and implement procurement processes that are different than before. Because more than ever, uh, looking at it is better than looking for it. Lightning round for the panel. Who is going to win the NCAA basketball tournament? Very important question. I, I will tell you what my heart says, but you can't beat me up afterwards. I'm a Michigan fan. No clue, but I'll go with Gonzaga. I was hoping for Wisconsin, but to be realistic, I will also choose Gonzaga. Uh, yeah, I've got to uh, into the bracket, but I'm going to copy you with Wisconsin because it helps our Milwaukee hotel. So. <laughs> One final question from the audience. Okay, sorry, didn't realize that was the final question here. But um, so for for the panel, obviously we talked about VE as a you know one of the levers you can pull to sort of reduce your project costs, right? But assuming that you all have outside investors and you know equity groups and lenders, and assuming that VE can't get you all the way there, what are some of the other levers that you're pulling on your projects to kind of balance the budget, or are you finding that those rate of returns or yields are compressing or changing to kind of maintain your capital stack? So I'll offer this. I, you know, I might have a unique opinion about value engineering. To me, value engineering is not a scope change. It's not a material change on the exterior of the building. It is finding a more valuable, cost-effective product that does the same thing in the same size and shape. I think you can get so far with value engineering. I, I do think there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of traction in taking a hard look at your performa. And when you're talking about investors, we, we've had several projects, um, nothing in Minneapolis specifically, but across the country that have revisited performers, shown that they have either a more uh, higher revenue from a hotel product or a higher property value from something that's, that's you know commercial or mixed use, et cetera, residential. And that's how most of those folks have effectively gotten over the big hurdles. Um, I will just say, if you're not willing to do honest and earnest value engineering, and you're not willing to relook at your performer that you did in 2018, you're going to go nowhere. It's too tough to get over those hurdles with the inflation and costs that you're going to see when your construction budgets come in. Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. It's not all about how do we get construction costs down. There's the rest of the model to look at. So you know, we're taking a look at every single line item with a fine-tooth comb. Um, I think uh, at, at the end of the day, uh, a lot of it is is taking, I think it squeezes your returns. Uh, you know, you're having to absorb this. There's, you know, the, we, we haven't been able to, you know, fully value engineer to maybe where we ideally get. So we take a look at, you know, what are our soft costs and, and obviously try to get those down too, but then what returns uh, and risk level are we willing to take to move forward? Yeah, we're seeing that too. A lot of the numbers are looking a lot different than they used to for spreads and things like that, your returns. So it's just a matter of assessing, you know, the risk, what, you know, what the capital influx is and if it's worth the risk and how to evaluate that. And um, there's probably a change of kind of investor uh, outlook of, you know, should we do this to keep the project and pipeline moving or should we hold off and, you know, take a pause and maybe buy something instead of develop something? Um, 
So these are real time conversations that we're having. So it keeps it interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, the the way out of a lot of this is, you know, you can't cut the cost enough. Really, it's, you know, how much are we going to go the top line, and that's the, really the way out of it. Um, you know, and and what's happening also is that, you know, we're not, you know, before we could hit us, you know. Uh, get on first base and we'll be happy with it, but now we have to hit home runs. So in terms of the project and the quality of the project and the market and the branding and all those things. So it's from us, we're you know, thinking about that a lot more in terms of, you know, we're, we can't just go to you know, any suburban market and, and throw up a brand new hotel and be okay. We have to really be specific on, you know, what are the demand drivers, how old is the product, and how robust is this market. And luckily, you know, from the transaction standpoint, we're seeing some of the values, not quite in Minneapolis yet, but you know, if you look in the southeast and things like that, and there's actually so, you know, you're hearing so many actually record-breaking uh, uh, pricing uh, on the, on even in multifamily, but in the hospitality side too, and I think in Nashville, the, the W in downtown Nashville just traded for 950,000 or unit. Um, so on the hotel world, that's a big number. Um, so, I mean, we're seeing some of those type of things and that kind of provides some confidence to the marketplace uh, that, hey, you know, people are still optimistic on where this is going. In, in a plot twist, my man up front did not ask the last question, so we got more upcoming. All right, sorry, this is the last one, I think. Um, with the supply chain disruptions and market escalation, have you seen any trends towards DFMA, direct for manufacturing and assembly, to try to move some of that product off-site, procure early, uh, control labor shortages, and maintain schedules? Yes. Uh, Can you elaborate? degrees of success and failure. I, I think that modularity is not a new idea. By the way, I was joking when I said I was only in the industry for three years, so I've seen some of this modularity trend come and go. Um, it, it has a place. It's not every place, and I think that if you judiciously use it, you can get some advantages, but one thing I would caution everyone is this. They don't have a better labor shortage. They don't have a better availability of things. What they can do is sometimes time it so that you can speed your construction. If that's the answer to your problem, that's a great thing. But if you can't get a sink, they probably can't get a sink. There's no magic in this modularity stuff. You just have to find where it fits. And uh, I would caution anybody to just rush to it without investigation because it can go backwards for you. I'm not sure I can speak really intelligently about that because I don't see a lot of the, the direct impact of, of, of that. But I will say one thing that's impacted us is um, for our Minneapolis project, we're required to use union labor. Um, and so uh, to, to the point, and this is a lender requirement, even if it's manufactured off-site, it needs to be union. So we're not necessarily uh, shielding ourselves from that uh, on that project. That's an excellent point. The union on union is really the major savings in that scenario. Yeah. You can't experience that savings. There's probably not much there. Yeah, I'd say the same thing. You know, we're you know we do have a modular project design right now, and it's the you know the thing with modular is. That yeah, we're not really seeing the cost savings, unfortunately, but, you know, hopefully in the time savings, there is some, you know, cost benefit there. Uh, but also, it's it's a commitment. Uh, you, you can't, it's once you decide to go modular, you kind of have to design it modular and build it modular or else you got to start all over again. So um, once you go down that route, yeah, you got to kind of commit to it when you're fully modular. There may be some other systems, like I know bath pods and things like that are out there where you can maybe sneak it in uh, midway through or something like that, but... 
uh, when you're thinking true modular, it's a you, it's a it's a full process you have to go through it, and it's a you know city education process and all those things. So. So much, panelists. It was a pleasure, and I think we're ready to turn it over to the next panel. Yeah, as I call Andrea, PJ, Blake, Brandon, Rafi, and Jeffrey up to the stage, let's have a round of applause for our first panel.